This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I figured it, out. I it was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey guys, welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. I am your host, Aaron Barker, and this week we're presenting stories about math in honor of Pi Day this Wednesday, March 14th. Pi Day, you may be slightly disappointed to learn, as I was, is not a day centered around the eating of pies. It's actually in celebration of the mathematical constant pi, which is a very long number that begins 3.14, hence March 14th. You get it. We're all on the same page here. So to join in the celebration, we have two stories from mathematicians this week. Both were recorded in January 2018 at the Tipsy Crow in San Diego, California, at our show in partnership with Springer Nature and in conjunction with the American Mathematical Society's joint mathematics meeting. Our first story is from Ken Ono. I'm up here by accident. (laughs) So... My father, some of you may know, was a mathematician. He, for many years, was a professor at Johns Hopkins. And I don't know about many of you, but when I was a teenager, the last thing I wanted to do was be anything like my dad. And definitely the last thing I wanted to do was anything that my parents told me that I should do. And I'm not trying to be funny. I love my parents, but, um, you know, when you're 16, that's not unusual. So in 1984, that's when I was 16, so you'll know I'm about to turn 50. Hawaii 5-0, right? (laughs) When I was 16 in 1984, a letter came to the house addressed to my dad, written by a widow, widow of an Indian mathematician by the name of Ramanujan. We made a film about him. And it was the most extraordinary letter I'd never heard of Ramanujan before. And this letter to my dad thanked him for being one of 80 mathematicians that helped give um, Ramanujan's widow a a bust. You see, Ramanujan turned out, as I learned, was a major mathematical figure. And when he died in 1920 as as a hero in India, the government had promised to erect a statue in his honor But by the 1980s, well over 60 years later, the government had not come through with it. And the mathematicians of the world gave Mrs. Ramanujan the statue. And I thought it was a lovely story. But I have to admit, when I was 16, what I heard was there was a two-time college dropout who ended up inspiring the mathematicians of the world. And when you're 16 and your parents are like super Asian telling you to get 800 on the SAT math test or getting straight A's, the only thing you hear is they look up to a two-time college dropout, and I, I thought that was so 
awesome. And I know that sounds funny, but it was really important for me because, you know, and certainly for all of you who are professors, you see the kids in class that are mindlessly pursuing good grades, forgetting that they're in college, forgetting about the content part. And for whatever reason, there have been a lot of accidents in my life, and I've ended up following Ramanujan first as a, a source of inspiration, but certainly for the last 20 or so years, a source of mathematics. It's actually really crazy. He was kind of like an incomplete prophet. He left behind three notebooks. I don't know why you all don't read these notebooks, because I can't tell you how many papers I've written because I've gone through these notebooks and found really deep suggestions. But that's not my story. My story is actually very difficult to, to tell because um, I was a terrible student. I was, I was a dick. <laughs> I was one of those kids in college that didn't want to go to class. I was one of those students that rather perversely got a lot of pleasure out of getting by in math class by not going to class. And I'm not proud of that. And I have to say that I had great mentors along the way. You know the names, Paul Sally, my advisor Basil Gordon and others, later Andrew Granville, who rescued me at times when I almost quit. Jeff Legarius, who is here, will remember me as a, a PhD student about to quit. I can't believe that, 20 years ago, I was about to take a job at a bank. Now, if you work for a bank, that's, I mean, my point is, my point is, <laughs> my point is, is that there are a lot of accidents, there are a lot of mentors along the way, and there can be a lot of luck in one's career. So my story is about how I accidentally ended up having a career in mathematics that somehow ends up with me standing, bumbling in front of all of you about, well, whatever it is I'm going to say. So what I want to, the story I want to tell you about is my big breakthrough. How is it that I became discovered and ended up having a good career? And it's totally by accident. So it was 1997, about 20 years ago. I got an email from Bruce Berndt, who is, uh, many of you probably know Bruce. He's a professor at the University of Illinois. He's devoted his career to studying Ramanujan. And I am so grateful that he said that he had an unpublished manuscript that Ramanujan had left behind, and he wanted some help editing this manuscript. I thought it actually sucked, right? So what, I, you know, what experience do I have editing a manuscript? But it was like the most incredible experience. So in 1997, I was a beginning tenure-track assistant professor at Penn State. This is Happy Valley. I was so grateful to get that job. Quite frankly, I, I didn't believe I deserved the job. I was certainly an imposter, a fraud. And on any event, let me just tell you a little bit about my circumstances. I had an office on the fourth floor. The building is called McAllister Building. It was built in 1904. It was originally intended to be the women's dormitory. But by 1997, it was in decrepit state, but somehow it was good enough to be a, the math department. <laughs> I mean, how awful was it? It was this awful. The internet went out probably every month, and I can exactly tell you why. 
because the cables which were in the attic, the squirrels, we had squirrels living in the attic. And so, so certainly the squirrels enjoyed the, the taste of internet cables or at least the, or at least the mouthfeel of them. And so the internet went out all the time. My office was in the corner. The ceiling was so low that there were places where, well, for half of the office, you really couldn't even stand up, and I'm not that tall. I had an air conditioner. It didn't work. And my window, it, it had a lock. No, I, that's not right. It once had a lock, presumably broken off decades ago, but it didn't, it didn't even really matter because this building was in such decrepit state that there must have been like five or six layers of paint that made it impossible to open the window. Well, anyway, in any event, getting back to um, this, this manuscript that Bruce Burnt asked me to help him out with, uh, it was a chore. And uh, so we started going through the notebooks. And there were some things in the notes that were just wrong. But it turned out that they weren't wrong. It was that I wasn't smart enough to figure, smart enough to figure out how right they were. So you see, Ramanujan in his notebooks sometimes used the equal sign in a way that's so different from what we would agree as. Or if, if A equals B, that's supposed to mean A and B are the same thing. But to Ramanujan, it didn't mean anything like that. So over the course of several months, we went through the notes, and um, you know, I had this freakish yellow couch in my office. When you're a poor graduate, kind of poor beginning um, tenure track assistant professor, you can't actually furnish your office. So I was so excited when I went to uh, Penn State Salvage. I bought a, uh, this, this, this stained orange couch for 20 bucks. And it was like my most prized possession. By the way, if you, if you need like adding machines from the 1960s, go to Penn State Salvage. You can buy them for $5. <laughs> So in any event, it was on this couch that I did most of my work. And in the course of going through Ramanujan's notes, I finally began to figure out one of these formulas. It was so wrong that, you know, just like Hardy said, it had to be somehow right. It had to be born out of genius. And it, I can't explain this, but it was one of those flashes of insight where I finally saw what Ramanujan had meant in this formula. And it turned out it was related to a 80-year-old problem. And I went to the computer and I started computing. And term by term, it actually worked out despite the fact that it had no right to work out. So I went back to the orange couch and I tried to build a theory out of it. And then it was another thing. I finally figured out it was related to things that I'd actually been thinking about. I, I hate it when someone tells you when they're dead after 60 years that you don't understand your own subject. <laughs> And it was an epiphany. I've never had another epiphany, I think, like that. I sprang up from my yellow couch. I banged my head on the gabled roof of this ceiling of this building. I still have a notch here. I mean, you have no idea. I really have a, it's more than a scar. My skull is indented here. And I couldn't believe the gift that I was given by going through these notes. I ran out into the hall and went to the bathroom. I washed my face with cold water. I was so, I was shaking. Kind of like I'm shaking now because I'm petrified. And I got water all over. It was awful. And then in walked my colleague, Dale Brownowell. He's like, what the hell happened to you? You're all wet. You're bleeding from your head. 
and I couldn't admit to him that like the most amazing thing in my career had happened to me. So I lied. Something like I hit my head on the coat hook in the bathroom stall. <laughs> but in any event, what I wanted to say about this story is that I have no right to be here. I'm not really smart. I'm really lucky. And it's one of those things when you're young, when you don't know where, where your career is going to go, that there are those miracles if you kind of believe in yourself. So in any event, to make a long story short, I wrote a paper. It was solicited for publication in the Annals of Mathematics. I ended up winning a prize from the President of the United States for this theorem. I gave a speech about this theorem in the Indian Treaty Room at the White House. And at the end of the day, what's going on in the back of my mind is not even my theorem. I got a gift from God. Ramanujan was someone who, whose ideas came as visions from a goddess. And who am I, gonna, who am I to argue with that? I was a 2.7 GPA student at the University of Chicago. And somehow, and that's what was going on in my mind, what am I doing at the White House? Any event, if that inspires you, I hope it does, because um, I've been following this, this genius and I can't explain, cannot begin to explain how amazing that's been. Thank you. That was Ken Ono. Ken is the Aza Griggs Candler Professor of Mathematics at Emory University. He is the Vice President of the American Mathematical Society and is considered to be an expert in the theory of integer partitions and modular forms. He was awarded a Presidential Early Career Award for Science and Engineering by Bill Clinton in 2000, and he was named the National Science Foundation's Distinguished Teaching Scholar in 2005. He serves as editor-in-chief for two Springer Nature journals and is an editor of Springer's The Ramanujan Journal. He was also an associate producer of the Hollywood film The Man Who Knew Infinity, which starred Jeremy Irons and Dev Patel. Both of our stories today are from our partnership with Springer Nature's Springer Storytellers program. To find out more about these storytellers and our ongoing partnership, check out beforetheabstract.com. Our next story is from Piper Heron. I smile a lot. I was invited to do this radio show once. It never aired. I'd been invited because they'd heard about me, about my thesis. At one point, one of the hosts expressed surprise at my voice. He thought I'd be angrier. Well, my cisgender heterosexual darling, this is what angry sounds like. I smile a lot because navigating social expectations and other people's perceptions is second nature to me. The analysis, the accommodation happens automatically without my consent. It's not a quality I recommend in general, but it is a necessary survival skill for many of us. All of my invitations are because of my thesis, the first time I stopped accommodating expectations. Okay, so my PhD thesis was weird. It's pure math, but I included introductions for non-mathematicians, and even the mathy parts were far less formal than you might expect. I filled it with humor and complaints. My prologue talked about sexism inherent in math culture. And throughout, I was honest about my understanding, my confusion, and my frustration. I wrote my thesis for me, 
And research math is basically never for me. After it was accepted, I put it online on a website I called The Liberated Mathematician. And the next day, a friend told me I broke math Twitter. <laughs> so it was kind of a big-ish deal at the time, and I get invited to things. I even have this talk I wrote in which I describe my journey. My journey from someone who smiles and accommodates to someone who does what she wants and still smiles. And I thought I would tell that story here. It fits. But I can't. Sorry. The thing is, my talk is not about my turning point. It's about the underlying pain that accompanies oppression. And my story is only meant to empower those who, like me, have struggled to understand how do we survive? How do we thrive? I have no intention of presenting racist violence as a catalyst for a moment of self-realization where I become the hero who did the thing and we all feel good about ourselves. No, that is not my story. That did not happen, and I won't say that it did. I was invited to tell a story, but I am not a storyteller. Stories are nice, engaging, they bring you in. They allow you to empathize with another life. They can also be packaged and marketed. They can be abused. They allow you to distance yourself from the burdens of reality. Now, you're all invited to my real talk. I mean, you'd have to invite me to give it. And I would tell you some things, some funny, some not, and you would get to know me better. There is no 10-minute version. I need people of color, trans people, native people, disabled people, I need them to know that I hear them. Our stories are endless. Our struggles are ongoing. Our pain is not for your consumption and spiritual growth. When we overcome adversity, our oppressors are so moved that they do nothing to fix the adversity that we never should have faced in the first place. I will not be knowingly complicit in an event that allows my oppressors to feign empathy while they keep their distance. While you continue to do nothing, no, you do not get my thesis story. What I will give you instead is the epilogue. You see, after decades of empathizing with and internally apologizing for all the totally not racist white people I was surrounded by, it finally hit me that this country would see me murdered, leave my body laying on the ground, blame me for my own death, and charge my parents for the ambulance. That was my turning point. That's how I was able to write my thesis as if nothing mattered. Are you feeling empowered and inspired yet? Look them up and see how this country sees me. Natasha McKenna, Corin Gaines, Brooklyn Brianna Stevenson, Keisha Michael, Markinton Sandlin, Tamir Rice, to name a few. With my thesis, I became the liberated mathematician, and I gained an audience, and I gained a platform. And then this summer, I told white men that they were in my way. I said this on a math website which had, I presumed, a limited audience. 
What I didn't know is that the alt-right has people searching the internet for academics like me egregiously sticking up for the human rights of marginalized people. And they literally want me personally to not exist. I know because they told me. They told me every day. They told me every few hours. People read the alt-right headlines and the context-free quotes and got their feelings hurt and they got angry and they said, this is not their America. And they wrote me emails and they sent me messages on Facebook. And these guardians of America called me racial slurs, sexist slurs, homophobic and transphobic slurs. They called me ugly. They said they hoped I got cancer and died. They said I should be fired. I should lose my children. They said I better hope I don't run into them in real life. These people were going to make America great again by sending me pictures of lynched black men hanging from trees. I guess that was the last time America was great. Have you ever waited impatiently for something you were excited for? You know how long that takes? Have you ever waited for an end to something awful? Do you know how long that takes? Have you ever waited for the pain to mm -hmm. stop? It seems silly to measure this in weeks. What's two or three weeks? I want you to think of this in terms of hours. It was over 300 hours that I endured this barrage of hate. And it wasn't even the hate that got to me so much as it was the uncertainty. For over 300 hours, I felt unsafe. Can you think of a time when you didn't feel safe? when you didn't know what was going to happen to you, whether or how it was going to end, whether your life would be ruined forever, or... As soon as it started, a friend warned me that this was an attack. They would threaten me, threaten my family, try to get me actually fired, and in fact, they emailed every single member of the math faculty, the Board of Regents, the chair, some left threatening voicemails I have not listened to. One student contacted every single journalist, editor, and photographer in the state. By day three of this, my outlook was dark. And I received a lot of support from friends and strangers, but it did not break the darkness. The constant exposure to hate has an effect even if you don't believe it, even if you don't care, even if these people are truly nothing to you. That's something I never understood about bullying. It has a power even if you understand it's not real. Now, I was told this was my fault. I'm not talking trolls anymore. I'm talking about people in my world or in my periphery, people who claimed that they were trying to help. I was told I should have expected this. I was told my blog post was imperfect, and that's why the harassment is lasting so long. I was told I shouldn't even be writing these things on the internet if I haven't put it in, put in the time and the research, if I haven't been following the social justice issues coming out of other departments. I was told I was responding wrong. I was told I wasn't listening. The trolls made me unsafe because they wanted me to shut up, to not exist. They wanted me fired. They actually tried to destroy me in as much as they could. 
The so-called allies made me unsafe because they told me that who I was was not enough, that my story, my pain did not matter if I didn't do things in the way they deemed fit. They told me it was not okay to have an emotional reaction even as I'm scanning every damned email looking for physical threat against me and my children. The so-called allies scrutinized me. They scrutinized my behavior, my emotions, my reactions. They took the trolls for granted. What did I expect? The trolls and the false allies shared a common belief that I was some kind of soldier in a cause rather than a human being. And this would be funny, but it's not. Because soldiers are human beings too. And soldiers get stress and trauma disorders, and so did I. Six weeks before school started, I had my first panic attack. It had been about a month since the harassment had died down, and I thought that my life and my sense of self were returning to normal, and I finally made my first public post on Facebook. The very next day, I get an email from an alt-right website saying they're running a story on my Facebook activity. They have screenshots. They have comments from my spouse and my friends. I walked away from the computer and the walls started closing in. I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't do it like this. I'm gonna have to give it all up. I came this far and I'm gonna have to give it all up. Being the liberated mathematician, talking about things I care about is important to me, but I could not stand up to the fear of another psychological assault. For the next two and a half months, I would have basically constant anxiety and one to two full panic attacks a week. The constant anxiety was like dread took over my body, physical sensations in my stomach, up through my chest, my throat, and in my mouth. I have anxiety still, and anxiety makes everything harder. Anxiety is your body treats everyday tasks like scary, scary monsters. I look at my to-do list and I'm like, oh, no, absolutely not. Everything's impossible. I cannot. And you know, it's not like I've never not accomplished things before, right? The difference with anxiety is the impact. So previously, I might not have done everything as efficiently or as early as I wanted, but things get more or less done. With anxiety, it's like I'm about to lose several thousand dollars because I cannot figure out how to do the reimbursements because it just takes too many steps. With anxiety, it's like I flew across an ocean and all the way across the country to go to a conference and I'm about to miss it because I cannot figure out what time it starts, where it is, or how to get there. With anxiety, it's like I'm not going to eat because there are too many decisions, not enough space, and it's safer in bed anyway. This is not the story you wanted to hear. I did not tell you about my approach to research. I went over time. But this is life. This is what we're up against. I appreciate the smiles, the thank yous, the opportunities, the free flights. I really do. But what I need is for you to work harder to make the world safe so that my friends of color, my trans friends, my disabled friends, so that we can focus on our work instead of fighting to exist.
And if this seemed like a bad story, good. Do something. That was Piper Heron. Piper is currently a postdoc in the Department of Mathematics at the University of Hawaii at Manoa after receiving her PhD in mathematics from Princeton University in January 2016. Her PhD thesis, which we will link to on our site, received recognition for its humorous style and blunt social commentary, and she has traveled to many institutions around the country and in Canada to talk about her experiences trying to survive other people's good intentions. Some big news for you guys. In honor of our 8th anniversary, we're going to hold an awesome fundraising event in New York on May 1st. Our guests will include Joe Handelsman, Associate Director for Science under President Obama, Josh Gondelman, stand-up comedian and Emmy-winning writer for HBO's Last Week Tonight, Ariel Duhame-Ross, correspondent for Vice News. It's going to be amazing. It will be hosted by myself and, much more excitingly, science writer and master of puns, Ed Yong. We're going to have a wild time celebrating eight years of stories about science. Check out our website for more information. I hope we see you there. The Story Collider is grateful for the support of the Tiffany & Co. Foundation and of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is directed by Aaron Barker, that's me, and Liz Neely, with help from our amazing staff and volunteers. The stories featured in today's podcast were from shows produced by Aaron Barker, oh, that's me again, and Shane Hanlon. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders. The theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to the Tipsy Crow for hosting this show and to everyone celebrating Pi Day this week. Try not to party too hard, guys. Please celebrate responsibly. Thanks for listening. 